Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions, to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. Hey folks, Corey Kupfer here, another solo cast, and this is the continuation of my prior solo cast, uh, you know, my big cliffhanger on uh, who, what are the next five uh, uh, of the top of the 10 steps to um, really be able to do deals in a repeatable fashion, a successful fashion, in a way that, that, that really, really works. If you missed the last solo cast on this, you definitely, this is one where you definitely want to do them in order. So go back to the prior solo cast where I went over the top five, the first five of the 10 steps, which were why, figuring out your why, figuring out who you're targeting, what is your value proposition to that particular target market for any type of deal, what are the right resources that you need in place, and then building a model that speaks to all of that, right? That speaks to the why, the targeting, the value proposition, and, um, and also obviously having the resources in place to execute on that model. I also previewed for you all that the number six, which is the first one we're talking about today is the deal structure. Um, so here's the interesting thing. A lot of people jump to deal structure, right? In other words, they'll call me up and they'll have a potential uh, deal on the table or maybe they're thinking about doing deals and they sort of know generally, I think I wanna do small acquisitions. I think I wanna do, these particular joint ventures. I think I want to do some licensing deals. I have an online affiliate opportunity, whatever it is. And they'll say, how do I structure this? And I will say, I don't know yet. And they will be like, okay, why? What do you need to know? Well, first I need to know why you're doing the deal and who you're targeting, what you, you know. So we go through those first five steps and then they usually have not yet built the model, right? They're already talking about structuring. I explain the importance of having a model be, you know, especially if it's not a one-off deal, right? To be able to do this in a consistent way that's easy to manage, that is um, more streamlined, that's more clear to everybody involved, that creates a more valuable company down the line because it's not all over the place, whether it's in cap structure or whatever. So now let's assume we've created this model, right? Now, what is the deal structure within that model? Again, if you go back to the last solo cast, you know, I talked about things, well, does the model include equity, cash, employment, uh, you know, whatever on, a, on an M&A transaction, um, on a licensing deal, does, it, uh, does the model have exclusivity, non-exclusivity, limited exclusivity, uh, you know, certain minimums, that kind of stuff, right? Well, you're in pretty good shape to start structuring a deal based upon knowing what that model is, right? So what is the first thing we do? For, for our clients that we know, you know, have been clear that they want to do multiple deals. Even before we have a deal in place, we're going to uh, create the deal structure and we create a set of legal documents that reflect that deal structure 
even before there's a deal in place. Now, um, obviously, if somebody has a deal on the table, we will do the documents for that deal. But based upon the model, we still want to create a model. Like if there's some options with the model, and then we know already because we have a potential deal on the table that you know option A is going to be the one for this deal, we still recommend that folks have us draft a template, right? Access per asset purchase agreement, license agreement, joint venture, you know, agreement, whatever it is, right? Online affiliate agreement, um, strategic alliance, whatever it is. Okay. We still want to use that opportunity to draft it as a model because then we're going to be much more efficient going forward. Um, let's say you don't have a deal on the table, then that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to draft a template agreement or a series of agreements, depending upon the type of deal that we're going to use going forward that reflects the particular deal structure within the model that we have created. Okay. And the advantage of having these template documents is that we uh, are in a position where we have, um, first of all, we, we, we've thought through a lot of the issues in advance. doesn't mean there may not be some tweaking and negotiations on a particular deal, but we thought through a lot of the issues in advance, which also means that we can, the client can present it much more clearly. They're also ready to act. They're ready to move, right? If they have a hot prospect who's interested, they don't have to first then go take two weeks or a month or whatever it is to have documents drafted, et cetera. They can say, hey, here's your documents, right? You send them out. You know, you might have to tweak a couple of things based upon the conversations um, or the letter of intent that's been negotiated or whatever it is. But, you know, you can get that, that out very quickly. The other thing is it makes you look more professional, right? You're ready. You've done, you know, you, you have this model in place. You have your deal documents in place, right? You're not, you know, uh, scrambling. Um, so that deal structure to create that in advance and create the documentation for it is ideal. Again, if... Sometimes, obviously, there's a particular deal that triggers people to do this. They know they want to do future deals. We're going to use that deal to model it out, and we'll create the model documents and the customized document for that deal. Okay, so now, depending upon the kind of deal, by the way, there's a million different things we can talk about on deal structuring. But for now, I think that's, you know, that's the conceptual thing that I want you to understand. All right, so now you got this model, you structured the deal, right? You know you're targeting, you've got the value proposition. Now what happens, well, you get into the due diligence phase and there are various phases of due diligence. There's the first, uh, what I include in due diligence, general due diligence is even before you have a deal on the table, right? Uh, this includes how do you, you know, how do you find people? What do you need to know about the industry? Um, you know, what organizations can help you locate uh, or professionals, right? Brokers, investment bankers, you know, um, uh, what conferences you should go to. You can do due diligence on how you find deal folks, right? What the best way to find potential deal partners are. Then of course, if you're already, you know, in a discussion based upon your model deal structure, potential deal with somebody, then you have to do diligence on the particular target, right? On the joint venture partner, on the strategic alliance partner, on the licensee, on the uh, licensor, if you want to be a licensee, but, um, you know, or, uh, or on your acquisition target. Um, and we can spend a lot of time going into the details of due diligence, but you have legal due diligence, you have financial due diligence, you've got cultural due diligence, you've got um, um, uh, like systems and integration due, like tech due diligence. Uh, we represent a lot of people with financial services, so a lot of times there's due diligence around their investment philosophy and approach. And you know, and uh, like I have a client now who is actually on the sell side, uh, but they are. Um, 
you know, not active managers. They, 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 they believe in passive management. Um, so they're not looking to um, be with anybody who's an active manager. Well, if you're on the acquirer side, it's similar, right? You know, uh, do your due diligence, you know, and then obviously, uh, you know, any, any background or other issues, you know, is usually um, comes up in the legal due diligence. So, and then you just want to do the personal personality due diligence, especially if it's any kind of deal with an ongoing relationship, you know? So for me, going out to dinner with the person, the other person, the significant other is part of a due diligence process. Okay, so step seven is due diligence, right? Whether it's that general due diligence to be able to find potential deal partners or it's due diligence on that particular um, proposed deal partner, that's step seven. Step eight, negotiating. When I talk about negotiating, um, obviously most of you know that I've got a uh, Amazon best-selling book on negotiating, authentic negotiating. You can go there. I've done other podcasts and solo casts on negotiating specifically. For me in this context, this includes the conversation of, yes, the actual negotiations, but it's also the process to get the deal closed, right? You know, the truth is if you've done everything else and you have clear documents, deal structures, whatever, then off of those templates, you're doing some negotiation, right? If you have options A and B, which are they taking? Maybe, the, you know, you're going to tweak a little thing here, a little thing here, give a little bit on something uh, in a way where it's not going to mess up your model and your consistency, right? Um, so, you know, there may be some negotiation, you know, in that I'm a big believer, not that you should be, this is the way we do things. But if you're building a model and you have certain things, you don't want to deviate it from it too much, right? The whole purpose of building that model and building that deal structure that aligns with your why and who you're targeting, your value proposition, and that you put the right resources in place for is that you can do this consistently. But again, that doesn't mean that there's not going to be some variation, some tweaks, a little bit here, a little give there, you know, whatever it is, if it's in a way that doesn't fundamentally alter the deal structures, that, that suddenly you've got five or 10 different deal structures, right? Um, but you just have some variations some tweaks because that might be important to somebody a little extra here, whatever it is, right? So you go through that negotiation process. Once you get done with the negotiation, the actual closing of the deal should be mechanical, right? Your lawyers and other professionals should be able to help you do that because you already have this ideal, this, this model set of documents, right? That, you know, is, uh, that's documented your deal structure based upon your model. And now you've negotiated some changes or tweaks or uh, differences to that. And, you know, it's just a matter of uh, the lawyer's drifting language for that and then getting the thing closed. Okay, so that's number, that's number eight, right? So as I mentioned in the first solo cast where we went through one through five, that, you know, those are eight steps to get to the point where you've closed your deal, right? And a lot of folks think, okay, I'm done now, right? Why are there 10 steps, right? I've done my eight steps, I have the deal closed. Well, good, thank you, Corey. We've, uh, we've found the right uh, deal partner. It's aligned with LOI, we've done all this great work. Uh, we're good. Well, no, there's two other things uh, at least um, that you want to look at. And, and even though both of these things largely happen post-closing, you actually really want to think about these and put stuff in place and actually start taking action pre-closing. So it's a little inaccurate for me to say that there's only the eight steps until closing these two afterwards, because there's a lot of pre-work you need to do on these things and, uh, and, and some actual action you may be doing. So what are they? Number nine, so this is the first of the last two. Number nine is positioning, right? You want to start to think how you're going to position this deal, even well in advance of closing it. What do I mean by positioning? Well, there's a reason I don't use publicizing or marketing. Whatever. When I say positioning is because there's different layers, right? Sure, you want to 
think about how you're going to announce it out to the public, to the marketplace, so to speak. You know, it may not be the general public, but it may be your industry, your particular niche, you know, your business district, whatever it is. Okay. Um, you want to figure out how you're going to do that. What is the positioning, right? You see many, for example, deals where, you know, um, uh, there's a statement that the two companies merged. I will tell you that probably 90% of the time, if not more, it was not really a legal merger. Legal mergers where two companies come together and one merges into the other in this combination. Um, most quote unquote mergers that are positioned as mergers are really acquisitions. One company is bought another company, but because key personnel may be staying on and systems and, you know, and the clients are coming together from a general business colloquial point of view, it is a merger of those two businesses. It's just not a legal merger, right? So, you, you know, you're going to think about how you're going to position it out to the marketplace. Who needs to know what outlets you're going to, you, you're going to do, how you're going to, you know, talk about it, right? Um, what um, you want the market to know from your point of view as the, let's say, acquirer or licensor or, and then, you know, what's your deal partner, you know, and they may have some concerns about how things are positioned. Um, and um, so you want to really think that through because positioning can, can make a difference. The other piece is there's some internal positioning as well, right? With your current employees, with your current team, with the contractors, whatever it is, um, I see companies make this mistake often, right? Where the, the high-level executives are, are doing the deal and, you know, um, so whether it's a, an M&A deal and people are coming in or it's a aqua hire, we call it, you know, where you're sort of acquiring the firm, but not really, they're just uh, being employed, um, you know, and suddenly this is new personnel and the cultures don't, you know, don't mesh and merge. Um, and that sort of leads into, uh, that's a hint on what the 10th one will be on the cultural merging. But, you know, it's not even like part of it is that how do we do that internal communication? How do we position it to the team, to the employees, such in a way where they buy in, where they're happy about it? And it's not just on a merger, even in an external deal, right? I mean, if, if you have this phenomenal opportunity to do some sort of new strategic alliance, it may sound great to you, but your employees have to implement and execute on that. Their reaction to it could be, oh, my God, this is going to be a lot more work, right? So how are you positioning it to them? Are you making sure that they're, they know you're also getting additional key staff and team members, so it's not going to increase their burden? Are you showing them, even if it will increase their workload, how it's going to benefit them? You know, whatever it is, there's that, that internal positioning to your existing um, team. And there, there's, you know, could be also positioning you need to do with your existing clients, right? Especially if you've, let's say, bought a competitor or done a deal, you know, where, um, you know, maybe you have been talking about um, to your clients and prospects for many years on how you could, you are, what, what your value proposition is that's better than that competitor and how you bought them. And suddenly, well, how, how's that going to work? How are you going to? Um, so you want to think about the positioning, right? That's number nine. And number 10, which I sort of started to allude to, which sort of bring together, let's say, two employee groups and culture, whatever, is the conversation of integration. Okay. How are you going to integrate uh, this new uh, relationship? Now, this applies really heavily when you're doing some sort of acquisition or acquire or merger or, you know, where, where, where you're acquiring another company, because that usually involves integration of teams, people, right, at all levels, right, whether it's the employee level, the, the executive level, whatever it is, um, technology and other systems, right, how are you integrating those? We use this system, CRM, they use this CRM, we process things this way. They process things that way. 
but even when we're talking about um, like not merges, right? There's still integration um, on joint ventures, on license deals, on affiliate deals, right? In other words, how do we work together? How do the two companies work together? And a lot of times this inability to work together, this clash of ways of doing business, this clash of, of process, business processes, this clash of technology not talking to each other, um, this class of different financial approaches to different things causes an otherwise, what could be an otherwise good deal to go bad in the end. And we've seen so many examples of that. People just don't take into account what's needed for the integration. And like I said, it is so crucial for that to be thought through in advance of closing, right? To try to anticipate as much of the integration issues that can come up or opportunities that can come up, right? Um, listen, are you, you know, are you, um, is anybody going to lose their job, right? Are you trimming the staff because you have overlap, right? You better think that through and you better go back and position that in a way that doesn't kill morale, right? So just a recap of all of the uh, steps, right? We started in the last video with the top five with the last SoloCast uh, audio and video. Um, and we talked about why, right? Figuring out what your why is and who are you targeting? then what is the value proposition to those target uh, deal counterparts? How do you get the right resources in place so that you can do it successfully without it adversely affecting your day-to-day -day business operations? Then how do we build a model, a model that um, reflects and that is guided by your why and who you're targeting and your value proposition? Then what is the deal structure that's under that model, right? And the, the various legal documents and other things that you need in place to affect that deal structure. And how do we do due diligence to find deals uh, and you know uh, deal counterparts? And then how do we do due diligence on the existing or on that on any particular uh, prospective deal partner? All right. How do we negotiate and get things to closing? How do we position it? And then how do we integrate it? If you really focus on these ten steps, I'm going to tell you your chances of having um, doing a successful deal, and even more importantly, doing multiple successful deals that are successful not only in getting to close, but that work in the long-term, that integrate in the long-term, that create a manageable, all right, uh, way, all right, to create consistent growth and eventually increase, or over time, increase your own enterprise value, right? Because you've had to create these systems because you've not only shown that your own growth, but you've created a model and system to, for continued growth which is going to help the value of your company uh, going forward. So if, if you do all this, you're going to be in way better position than most companies that do, that do deals already. Um, as I've said in the past, we, uh, we spend a lot of time helping clients with this stuff. It's uh, part of my real joy to do so. I love doing these, these uh, whiteboarding sessions we do to help our clients, help entrepreneurs, help business executives think through these things in a way that will put them in a position to be much more successful, to do multiple deals to help grow their business. Folks, great talking to you. Thanks for listening. This is Corey Kupfer signing off for this week. Um, come join us next week for a um, episode with another great guest. Take care. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. 
In the Mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a Mastermind format. To sign up for the free Mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.